Yes, what do you say? Hi, everyone, and welcome to Conversations with Bacon. Hope everyone's doing very, very well. Thank you again for listening. As usual, you can get the latest episodes of the podcast at johnobacon.com slash conversations. And I would love your feedback on who you want to hear on the podcast. Uh, who do you think is interesting? Like our guest today, who I'm going to get to in just a second, but send me emails to conversations at johnobacon.com. That's basically how it works. All right, so I'm thrilled to have on the show today the glorious Emily Musel Church. Um, how are you doing, Emily? Doing great. Did I butcher you your middle name or your double barrel? No, that's right. You got it just right. Is that middle or double barreled? How is this? Middle. Oh, okay. Very cool. Okay. Well, yeah. uh, you, you don't want to hear my middle name. It's not good. No, um, what is it? Uh, it's Edward James. Jonathan Edward James Bacon. What is wrong with that? <laughs> uh, I would argue everything. <laughs> Uh, anyways, thank you for coming on the show. We used to, we used to work together when I was at X prize. Let me go through the rap sheet before we get onto the work that you've been doing, which I think is really interesting. So you were at Trinity college, Hartford, you were uh, a coordinator for Africa, for the African studies program. And then you moved on to Lafayette college where you, where you were the assistant professor in the history department with faculty affiliations with Africana studies and women's and gender studies. Um, so obviously a fairly deep interest in Africa, right? Which is, I think, shining through. And then you were, <laughs> a, then you were the advisory board member and strategic consultant to Nomadic Wax, which I've never heard of before, but is the coolest name ever for an organization. Yes. Um, where you were a consultant to the CEO on education, which I think is really interesting. So we're now tying together Africa and education. You can see where I'm going with this. <laughs> um, I'll cut... To cut a long story short, you joined XPRIZE in 2014. This is when we started working together and you worked on the Global Learning XPRIZE. Now, this I think is a really, really neat competition. Um, I was thrilled to play a small role in it. You've played a huge role in it. Give us an overview about what the Global Learning XPRIZE uh, was and continues to be. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Jono. Uh, so the Global Learning X Prize, as you pointed out, was launched in 2014. Um, and the idea here was to say, how can we challenge innovators to find a solution for the more than quarter of a billion children around the world who still can't read, write or do basic math? Right. So we thought, how is there a technological solution when we can't build schools fast enough, we can't train enough teachers, we have a growing youth population? How can we use the new technology we have to help reach all of these children? Yeah. So we put that call out to the world. We had um, well over 700 people pre-register to be part of the competition. We ended up with 35 fully registered teams who then, through our panel of international judges, uh, were Picked, they selected five finalists. Those five finalist teams were given a million dollars each right. with a, uh, from Elon Musk. And we launched a massive field test in Tanzania with 170 villages, about close to 3,000 children. And each village had one of these five winning software solutions. The idea here was to look for children who didn't have access to formal schooling, uh, when we did our baseline testing, about 90% of these children uh, couldn't identify a single word in Swahili. Right. Um, so we left the tablets in these communities with the, uh, we built infrastructure that was a solar charging station, had a uh, 
a village mama or baba in each community whose role was merely to make sure that the tablets were being charged. We said specifically, if a child's not interested, let it be. Mm. You know, there's no, they weren't really a teacher in, in this. We wanted to see what would happen if children were given the access to something that would teach them. Were the, were the games in the software engaging enough? Is it something the child on their own would want to go to? Right, right, right. Um, we baselined the children 15 months later uh, to find out, determine which of these five winning softwares uh, solutions had the greatest learning gains. And right. all these teams were competing for 10 million additional dollars. The grand prize was another 10 million. Right. Uh, so that's the basics, but it's I can all, get into the results no, if you want. Well, let's, let's hold off on that for now. Let's start a little bit at the beginning, I think, because yeah. this notion that there's 250 million kids around the world who don't have access to education, when we, I think yeah. when we think about that in Western terms, we think that um, they, they don't get to go to school or they have very poor quality school education. Um, can you unpack that a little bit? I mean, is this literally sure. no access, it, you know, and what's the impact on, that's got to have a huge impact in a kid's life, right? For sure. So those are, let me answer both of those questions. So one is about, is there literally no access? Um, so for some children, there is schooling that they can get to, but there's all sorts of things that stand in the way of a child being able to access that school. Right. Sometimes it's that it's, you know, two hours by foot to get there. Mm. Very often these are overcrowded classrooms. And when I say that, meaning you can have 800 children of all different ranging in ages, you know, over a 10 year age span with a teacher who isn't always able to show up themselves. Right. So even if a child can get to school, that's one of the challenges. There's other things for, you know, we're talking about these hundreds of millions of children. There's areas where girls can't safely go to school. There's areas where you have disease outbreak, like when we had Ebola, right. or there's conflict zones, or children living in refugee camps, or lots of different reasons why a child may not be able to access the school. Right. And then you have the quality of the schooling in that particular region. The other question you asked was about what's the impact on a child's life? So there are there are so many studies that people could look at. The basics here is if a child even gets basic education, when they can read, write and do basic math. So we're not even talking about high degrees, anything like that. Yep. It transforms their possibilities for their lives and for their communities, which then translates into their whole country and I would say the world. Right, so the right. impact is huge. Um, particularly, there's a lot of focus right now on girls' education. Um, when, a, when a girl child is educated, because um, we know two-thirds of the world's illiterate population are, are women. That when really? A girl gets, mm -hmm, it's wow. the majority. Huh. Um, and when a girl gets educated, she has fewer children, healthier children, the children are more likely to be educated, the family is healthier, any income that the mother generates tends to go back into the community. So the results are just compounded upon themselves to help the whole community. Is there a, is there a cultural element to this? Because I remember when I was at XPRIZE, I remember someone saying that in some parts of Africa, you know, the expectation is that... Um, like families have a lot of kids. And one of the reasons for that is because they can work on like a farm or they can, mm -hmm. they, they can take care of the family. And there's an implicit expectation that you take care of the family. Whereas education, I imagine could be seen as, as a threat in some ways that it could take that purse, that kid away from the family um, for sure. to a city or wherever to go and work. Is that, yeah. is that an, a contributing factor? Do you think to this? Yeah, that's definitely a contributing factor. Um, so 
There's a few things. One, you also have a higher child mortality rate when you're talking about the number of children that people have. Right. So um, that's that's one factor. Uh, but that's all linked also when people have greater health and greater education, mm. child mortality rates go down. Right. But for sure, in terms of looking at children as a resource for the family or the community, um, when you're in an agrarian society um, or any other where the children are participating in part of the overall um, income for that for that community, if you send your child off for many hours to walk to school, they're gone all day, they come back and they haven't learned anything a right. parent or a community member is going to say, well, this isn't helping us at all. Yeah. Um, one of the things we found in our field test was that the communities started rearranging some of their tasks and chores because they started to see value when the children learned. So I'll give ah. you one specific example. Yeah, we were surprised by this. Um, some of the communities that we were working in were Maasai communities, which are um, tend to be semi-nomadic. Right. Most of the, the boys in Maasai communities are responsible for herding cattle. So we started to hear these reports back that there were parents, once they saw the boys were learning, and this, so I talked previously about girls, I want to make right. sure I'm also talking about some of the instances with boys, that they said, this is of greater value to us. And they, for the first time, started to pool their resources and get some training books and other things because they said, finally, my child is learning to read and do math and they may have other opportunities there. Ah, I see. So, so you know. So you there's, know, like this, a, there's like a knock on effect, right? That yes. it's not just the impact on the child, but there's going to be the impact on the family. There's going to be impact on the local community because we humans, we mimic others, right? So I imagine right. as well that there's probably a, a peer component that if there's one kid who's playing with one of these tablets and learning how to read that another kid may want to get in on the action or another parent may want yep. that for their kids. Is that kind of what you seeing as that as well? Yes. We saw that all the time. So, you know, part of the reason we gave no instructions or, or I should say structure in terms of how long they should use the tablets is we really wanted to understand how people wanted to use it on their own. So if community right. said these are no, of no value, that's for us worth knowing. Right. So, you know, if they, if they didn't see value, great, put it aside. Yeah. Um, so what we saw a couple other things, um, people were organizing once the communities said, Hey, this seems to be bringing some value to all of us, you yeah, know, yeah. the child, they would say, great, you know, finish these chores by this time. And then you can do learning because the child wouldn't be gone all day. They learned with about an hour a day on the tablet, they had the same learning gains as a child full-time in school. So really? You, yeah, that was a really, So were the know, kids, what, do you, did, did you get the sense that the kids were, I know we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit and I want to talk about like <laughs> what the competition was, but I think this is an interesting point. Were the kids therefore seeing the learning time as, as kind of a, almost like a reward? Like it was something that they were looking mm -hmm. forward to. Because yes. I imagine that if you... I can imagine trying to put myself in the position of one of these kids living in a, a fairly rural village that suddenly you've got one of these cool like devices that's got a screen on it and you can play with it and it can teach you and it talks to you. That's got to be fascinating, right? That's got to be like a kid getting a brand new toy. But I imagine that that newness wears off after a certain period of time. Yeah, that's a great point. That's so that's part of the reason why we wanted the field test to be more than a year, because right. as you, I'm sure, know that. Almost every application that people get, they play with it. There's interest in the beginning, anyone in any culture and age, and then the usage rate drops off unless yep. it's really showing some value or really great fun. So that was something else we wanted to track. We said, okay, if we leave it there for just 
three months or even six months, are we really going to know if these engage the children? Right. So we were thrilled to see after 15 months that the children were still using it. They were asking for more. Um, another thing we saw was that the children who had tablets, we had only specific number of children. They were supposed to be about ages nine to 11. We ended up having some ranging from ages five to 12, but the majority were nine, 10 and 11 years old that they were teaching younger children in their community. Teenagers want to use it. Parents, after the kids went to bed, were looking at the tablets. Um, so it, it really became something. It wasn't just about that one learner, but it became a community resource. Right. It, it kind of reminds me a little bit in some ways of the, probably the early days of the TV or how TV used <laughs> to be, not even necessarily in the early days, but back kind of when I was growing up, it was a communal thing. We, we gathered around it. And, yep. and experience something together. And it kind of reminds me about that. So dialing it back a little bit. So the challenge yeah. was teens were challenged to build an Android application that runs on an Android tablet that teaches kids how to read, write, and perform basic arithmetic, right? That's the basic premise of the, of the prize. So That's how right. was that, um, how was that, uh, how, first of all, what was the take up on that? Like how many teams did you have signed? Because I remember, Back when I was at XPRIZE, and this was the first prize that I worked on, there was a huge level of interest in this. Mm -hmm. um, and there was like over 150 teams, I think, signed up for it. But Yeah, the pre-register was over 700. Oh, it was over 700. Yeah, it was massive. And it was our first software competition. Right. So every other XPRIZE um, since the 90s has been a hardware competition. So this yeah. one was our first software, first one having to do with education, first one that was going to be tested outside of the U.S. So we were really just experimenting with this one. We had no <laughs> idea what was going to happen. Yeah. And I remember conversations with you back then uh, because we were saying, hey, there's so many people interested in this, particularly software developers. How are we possibly going to take this number? You know, we normally would get something like, 20 to 30 yeah. and we're having hundreds and we're asking our judges from around the world to judge all this software. So that was definitely a challenge we had in the beginning. Yeah. 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 Well, the thing is as well is, I mean, with, for people who are less familiar with X prize, you know, when, when Emily says about these hardware competitions that they're, they're not small competitions as well. Like it's building yeah. um, vehicles or building ocean cleaning equipment or, or mapping rocket equipment, ships. rocket <laughs> ships. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty profound, the level of investment. I think the incentive model, which I'd like to get into in a bit, actually is yep. really interesting because I think a lot of people, um, I, I've, I've discovered from working at XPRIZE that the XPRIZE universe and the technology universe that I tend to operate in, in some ways don't know each other as well as I'd like to. And I think a yeah. lot of people in tech don't know m as much about XPRIZE as they should. And it's a really interesting model. But going back to the, uh, the competition, so these over 700 teams they register, right? So they filled in a form and they paid their whatever, 150 bucks, whatever it is to sign up. How did you then whittle it down to the the, the number of teams? Because there's a selection process, right? How mm -hmm. does that work? How do you go from these 700 of which some of them are probably just going to be people who think they can have a go at this and they're yeah. not really going to go anywhere <laughs> yeah. to get down to the people who are serious about it? How does that work? Well, some of it was setting the criteria so we had guidelines that was a certain amount um, that people had to reach. So things right. like they were being judged upon um, the ability for it to be localized into different languages. We tested in Swahili and we said teams had to have full content in both English and Swahili. Yeah. 
Um, the other thing, and you were instrumental in this was, this was our first and still only open source competition. Right. So some of that, once people got into it and realized that they were going to have to open source the code, you know, it has been amazing to me. I'm new to the open source community where I was, I should say back then. Yeah. It was really amazing to see people who just said, yeah, this is for the greater good. I want to create this and allow this to be a tool for anyone to build upon. Mm. But that, that did whittle it down because there were other people who wanted to create an app or maybe they had a literacy app. And once they realized the amount, the design that had to go into it. So for example, some people, they're already literacy apps. You know, I have two young children. Yeah. I know about a lot of, you know, there's plenty out there. Yeah. Things like um, ABC mouse and yes, those kinds exactly. of things. Yeah. But they tend not to be designed for, first of all, 10-year-olds who are learning basic literacy, so make, getting the age range right. Um, secondly, most of these children don't have exposure to technology, or it's very little. Like maybe there's one or two people who have a flip phone or something in their community, but learning, you know, teaching the community without somebody there to facilitate how you use, you know, one finger to swipe, that type of thing, and that the that the software is developed just for those communities. Uh, I think some people, yep. once they realize the challenge that's there, that you, this is not something, um, even though we want to have ideas from anywhere, the idea for an X prize is anybody anywhere can have the best idea to transform something. Yep. Yep. At the same time, it's a competition that really requires collaboration because there are, I mean, I don't know how many people in the world know how to do amazing game design, curriculum design, understand Swahili language, um, oh, yeah. the, the yeah. cultural um, issues of going into a, a very remote rural area in Tanzania, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. our teams that made it through were ones who were so committed to talking to people who were from different fields, from different parts of the world, and really creating something that was going to work for this population. So that's how a lot of it got whittled down. Did you, did you have a sense that a lot of, because I think your point about... Um, experience with like Swahili or the the region because the the region was always it was always clear that it was going to be in Africa I don't think at the beginning of the competition when it was announced that it was going to be yeah. Tanzania for the testing right yeah um, but did you get a sense that was was were there many teams that had experience with that region and and is that region critical to the success like do you feel like what you've seen in the global learning Prize entries that they could be useful in you know, could, they, they could be translated into another language and be useful yeah. in Asia or in Europe or in America, wherever. So we, well, some of the teams were from Africa. So we had African based right. teams. We actually did not have, we were hoping to get a Tanzania based team. We didn't have um, innovators from Tanzania. That'd be we great had, if you did. Yeah. I know. We, yeah, we went over to some tech hubs there, but, uh, but Tanzania has really been um, amazingly involved and um, at this point, we, we can talk about that. But yep. so we did have some African innovators, South Africa, Kenya, um, Nigeria. I'd have to look back to find all of them. But I know we had a number of teams from different African countries. Hmm. But to your question about understanding that context, um, all the teams that got through either were from there or worked closely with people who were from Tanzania or understood. Right. So these were really international teams. And part of the judging criteria was to say that it could be localized to any language. So from the beginning, the idea was, and still is, um, for this to be software that can then be in, you know, Spanish, Arabic, any other language, and can be 
not just kind of Google Translate, but really localized, meaning there are stories and characters that are familiar to the child. There's something that, um, you know, this is something that the child will feel like is personalized to them. Yeah. This is ultimately about personalized learning. Yeah. Um, and, and on that note about personalized, one of the things I want to mention is so many children around the world are not diagnosed with special needs. Right. So, you know, even in the U.S., of course, um, uh, but we, we had to assume, our designers had to assume that many of the children would have learning challenges that, that aren't seen or known about. So how do they design for that? Oh, One of our teams yeah. mm-hmm, that ultimately won the grand prize at Kit School, um, they tied with uh, Team One Billion, but Kit School, um, there was a husband and wife game designing team that their first child was born with a number of special needs. So for them, that transformed their thinking before they even entered this prize to say, how do we design first for children who have special needs, who are often an an afterthought? Um, It's a good point, isn't it? Because certainly with a lot of software as it stands today, kind of in the beginning process of using it, you tend to configure it with your... um, your current situation, I guess, mm-hmm. in the same way that, you know, if you buy a exercise machine, you put your height and your weight and your gender and whatever else in there. Right. So it can tune the experience, but you can't have that assumption, right? With some of this software, because a, you, you can't expect a kid to go and configure the learning application before they use it. Yeah, uh, exactly. It kind of defeats the purpose, but also to your point, if, if, if the level of uh, learning disabilities isn't particularly clearly diagnosed or diagnosed at all, then you can't necessarily count for that. So, I guess the entries have to adapt to that. Is that kind of how it has to work? So, uh, you know, the teams were finding a way to say, we realize these children are going to have all different skill levels, but in general, pretty low um, in terms of literacy and numeracy. So how do we have software that's going to understand where that child is, engage that child, keep them engaged, track their progress and put them on the track to learning? Right. Um, so that was a challenge for them. I want to b- bring up an example from your last point, actually, and I hope this doesn't confuse people listening, but we had a second software competition, the Adult Literacy X Prize, that was right. also recently awarded last February. And I recently um, heard from one of the designers of the winner of Adult Literacy X Prize, who was talking about when he first designed um, for low literate adults living in the U.S., that's a below third grade education, um, he said, you know, his assumption was that in normal games, you go towards something that's a flashing light. Like if there's a star or blinking, people go towards it. And right. when they started testing on low literate populations in the U.S., that they were having the opposite effect, that they would go away from something that was blinking. Really? So it was through doing that design, you know, that they realized they had to shift what they were thinking about right. how a user is going to do it. So just to say that whether you're here in the U.S. or um, you know, in, in Tanzania or anywhere, understanding the population and designing for, you know, knowing that there's, they're not going to necessarily, the user is not necessarily going to approach learning the same way. And that's why it's so important when we say localize to really understand, talk to people, you know, test with people, um, yeah. to really understand those, that particular population. Which seems a more important message than ever, as <laughs> I would argue that technology and a lot of culture is becoming so homogenized. Is yeah, you know exactly. we're, we're we're seeing um, just standards of 
whether it's music that, you know, Taylor Swift is a good example of this. Like everything <laughs> about Taylor Swift, from what I understand, is designed to appeal to a broad audience in the same way that Coca-Cola and, and McDonald's and whatever else is. So, you know, taking into account those very nuanced cultural elements is, is, is really critical. Um, yeah. and, I, and, it's, and I think it's cases like this that are good. It helps, helps to shine us back on that important element of this. So, you know, you get these, you whittle these teams down and then they kick off into a, into a development phase, right? And this lasts a long, like a long period of time. One thing I didn't yeah. realize when I, when I first was thinking about going to work at XPRIZE was just how long these competitions are. They can be oh, yeah. three to five years. Um, um, did you just kind of leave them to their own devices while they were going on here? I know that when I was there, we we kicked off a little community and there was a little bit of collaboration and the teams were talking yep. to each other and there's a lot of information sharing. Um, but I noticed that a lot of teams, they just literally wanted to bury themselves in their own little, in their own little base and get on with it and, and kind of keep themselves to themselves. How, we, what was that like? Yeah. Through that, that dry period of just teams building <laughs> stuff. For sure. Yeah. That was about a, we had about a year and a half for the development phase. So we had about six months after we announced the competition, mm. six months of recruiting people because we wanted to make sure we were reaching people with diverse backgrounds in every way, you know, whether they were, so we were going to curriculum and education conferences and software developing conferences and trying to find out yeah. how do you reach populations in sub-Saharan Africa? Is it newspaper? Is it blogs? You know, all that sort of thing for about yeah. six months. Then that development phase for 18 months. So we did some team summits. We experimented with something new for XPRIZE, which was our, we had team summit hubs in different parts of the world. Okay. So part of this was to address those 700 plus people who are interested you know, previously we had team summits somewhere in the U.S. that people would all get together in one place. And we're like, well, that's just not going to work. Mm. So we had um, different team summits that where people could meet people in a basic region. And anyone was welcome to go to any of them, but we wanted to make sure they were in different parts of the globe. So it was easier and more affordable for people to get there. Right. Um, we did some education-based programs during that time to get people engaged and thinking about why open source um, to get sort of kids involved in um, thinking about this challenge. But yes, the short version is we more or less left the teams to do whatever they were going to do. Right. And for, for that, one thing about XPRIZE, we don't provide seed money. So some teams were off fundraising, um, teams were doing uh, field trials. So some of those things like the user experience we talked about a little bit before. So they were figuring out how to really develop the software, doing a lot of their own pilot tests. Yep. Um, part of the reason for that long development phase is, again, a, a principle for XPRIZE is we want to say, whoever you are, if you have this great idea, you can compete and measure up against anybody who is known as an expert. So to give people that, that runway to develop something, we had some people who said, hey, I have this tech, go test this. Yeah. And other people who said, wow, this sounds amazing. I'm going to go teach myself how to code. Like we had a, a junior high uh, class up in Canada who loved the idea of this worked with a local university to help teach the kids how to code so they could solve this challenge. So part of what we're doing is just hopefully inspiring the public to think about how you can use and harness technology and right. then hopefully have enough time to develop something so that it's, it's at a level that it could compete with, yeah, um, yeah. you know, a group that's more developed already. So zoning on on this for a second, and I know we're bouncing around again, but I think it's all relevant. It's all connected to the same story. Um, the incentive model is interesting because you have a competition like this, $15 million with a 
a, t- what, a $10 million uh, grand prize and then a million dollars distributed to each of the five finalists um, yeah. that they can obviously utilize towards um, improvements or field testing or whatever. Um, uh, the one thing that I think is interesting, and Peter Diamandis, the founder of XPRIZE, often talks about this in his keynotes where he says, you know, and he did it at the Global Learning XPRIZE Awards where, um, you know, there's this $50 million competition and there's a certain amount of money to pay the team and to, you know, to keep the lights on. Right. But it generates millions of dollars of investment from all of these different teams, which as a, as a slide in his deck, if you're at XPRIZE, looks really, really impressive, right? That you have hundreds Mm -hmm. of millions of dollars of investment. Um, But I think a lot of people could look at this and say, um, why are these people investing money? Uh, Why are they (laughs) raising money and potentially spending more money in many cases than they could win? And it took me a while to realize that the, the, the motivation behind doing this work in many cases isn't the price purse, right? It's that that's one element of it. It's an incentive, but it's not just the only incentive. We're so used yeah. to incentives where, you, you know, if you, if you fly a hundred thousand miles in United, then you get one K and you get, <laughs> yeah. you know, you get all these, you get upgrades and whatever else. And there's, you, you're chasing that specific incentive, but with the, with X prizes, it's a bit deeper than that. Right. Um, yeah. can you, do you have any, like, what, what's your thinking on yeah. this? Cause it, so... frankly, it doesn't make sense in an economic climate. <laughs> But it works and it's worked consistently yeah. for XPRIZE over the years. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think because, and now this may sound a little Pollyanna-ish, but I think ultimately people want to feel like they're doing something that has meaning and that yeah. is putting some good into the world. Right. Um, that most people want to do good, want to contribute and want to feel like what they're putting their time and effort towards does something and means yeah, something. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So when we interview our teams on, and this is every X prize, um, I think we've awarded about 15 so far and we still have active prizes in the midst of competitions. So anyway, all the teams, you know, they say, look, the prize purse caught their attention. You're going to click on something that says, Hey, do you want to win $15 million? Are you a software developer? Most people are going to click on that. Yeah, And also do you know where where that money's coming from? Yeah. Elon Musk. Yeah. Yeah. That guy. And you know, Various others, right. but yes, no, that's well, let's be honest. Elon Musk it, is pretty impressive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I think that idea that a lot of people say, sure, that was the thing that made them pay attention. It made yeah. headlines. It was the thing people click on, but then you get into it and you say, wow, this is a massive challenge. Some people say that we're looking at a, a, more like a, a half a billion children who aren't getting any sort of education. Wow. Um, when you really look at children who are going to school and not learning and combine that with children who aren't able to go to school. I mean, it, these are massive, massive numbers. And if you feel like something you can do, whether you're a software developer, um, a nonprofit who's been kind of maybe doing the same thing over and over again, and it's not like, okay, so we build another school, but we aren't really seeing a movement in learning gains or your curriculum designer or whatever. Yeah. People are saying I can contribute and do something that might actually change this. You know, Every X prize, the idea is not just a small incremental change. Yeah. We're talking about exponential is the word we always use. We're yeah. talking about massive change to say we believe and we can envision a better future. So we have a whole process to say, how do we bring that future closer to now 
incentivize people to start building it mm. and and pinpoint where are the blockages to that happening. Right. So where is it that the market's not solving, governments are not willing or able to solve, or there's a certain population that's being stuck and left out that's a major population? Yeah. What kind of technology can be developed that's going to massively transform that? That is something that's exciting to be a part of. So yeah, you want to win the millions. You want to be attached to Elon Musk's name, but also to feel like you might just be doing something that's going to solve that. Oh yeah. I mean, and what I think what's what's so cool <laughs> about this as well, going back to again the fact that it's software is. Um, I, I remember when I was at X Prize, there was a guy there called um, Andrew who was on the the Google Luna um, mm-hmm. X Prize. Uh, Andrew Barton, I think his name was. Yeah, and that's his name. Really cool guy and. Um, and he was saying, you know, one of the biggest challenges with the Google Lunar X Prize was you'd have these teams who could, who could, who, who had the engineering chops in many ways. They'd have to bring in other people to help them build it. But to build, um, you know, the, the competition for those people who are unfamiliar with it was to basically build a um, a spacecraft that could land on the moon. Um, yeah. When you talk about ambitious, that's pretty much where it is, you know? That's, exactly. You know, there's that and then building a hoverboard. When, when we see our hoverboard X Prize, <laughs> the world will be happy. Um, yeah. But he was saying, you know, there's all of this regulation that relates to um, building spacecraft um, and you, you can't diverge information that could be considered a military secret or could be a, mm-hmm. could be a risk to, to national security. You need access to all kinds of hardware and equipment and permission, and you need a launch contract. There's just a multitude of things that potentially could stand in the way. So the, so the actual audience that can really realistically pull something off is relatively narrow. Mm. The difference there's with software, of course, is is frankly anyone with a, with, with a computer and some programming expertise and being able to get access to people who understand about education, like the, the bar is much lower, I, I would argue. Yeah. And, and the collaboration across multiple geographies is much higher as well. We've seen this with the open source movement. Open source runs so much of the world now. So it seems like it makes perfect sense for XPRIZE to be heading more in that direction towards software-based competitions. Um, I mean, do you think that's going to yeah. happen more and more at Express? Well, we really need we really need both. I mean, there's a place yeah. for both the hardware and, yeah, and the software. And I think you're absolutely right in terms of it. Anybody who has connectivity and a laptop can start to build and really make something that's going to potentially help millions of people. Yeah. At the same time, the reality is actually getting it into the hands of people most in need. Yeah. So, you know, you can create the software and this is some, this is sort of where we are right now. Again, we're going <laughs> to jump ahead, but yeah. you know, I've gotten a lot of questions recently where people say, great, where can I download this app? Now, some of them are available already on Google play and other places. Um, some yeah. people have already localized, for example, there's now a Hindi version that's up on, on Google play and they're working on other languages. But what we really need is all of these pieces to work together, meaning we need it localized into, I would argue, 100 languages. Our goal is 20 by the end of the year. Right. We need affordable, durable hardware. So you can have all that software, but we can assume that people have the hardware for that software to go on to. Yeah. So we had donated Google tablets. Um, they generously gave us 8,000 Pixel C tablets for this project but something that people, communities can access that at an affordable price point. Right. Um, and you need people who are trusted partners who can actually get things into the hands of kids. So that ranges from 
shipping hardware somewhere to actually getting to remote areas that may be up on top of a mountain or out, you know, in a, in a really rural area somewhere. Right. Um, so it's really all those, those pieces working together. And that's something that we found with this competition. You know, a lot of people think like, great software, get it to kids. The reason we talk about our operational partners, like the world food program, UNESCO, um, you know, that they were able to actually speak to people in the communities and explain and say, Hey, this is what's happening. Um, is this of interest to you? They knew, you know, people knew who they were. It wasn't me and you walking somewhere where we're total strangers. It's people in this case who are of that region in Tanzania, speaking to them in Swahili um, and that they knew. So let's get into this a little bit because the field trials, I think is fascinating. And I think what you're touching on is there's a, um, there's like a technology innovation piece to this, which is building a technology that can solve the problem that we're focusing on. Right. And then of course there's the supply chain piece of, you know, you could build the tech, you could build the solution, but you've got to get it to your point, Emily, into the hands of the kids who who really need it. And obviously, the yeah. field trials was was you need to get it into the hands of the kids to to test it. But it's but you're very much testing an innovative early stage solution. Yeah. So how did it's a prototype? Yeah, right. How did that work? Because you had these five finalists, and um, I remember you. So XPrize put out this really great video, um, which kind of dug into this a little bit, and you have these. These people on motorbikes who are like driving out to all of these different villages. Oh, yeah. uh, walk through how that. So you, Google give you a big stack of of Pixel C tablets. Um, yeah. What did you do to get it into the hands of those kids? How did you go about that? <sighs> okay. So, well, first of all, you talked way back in 2014. You said we didn't know what country it was going to be in. So you got to rewind back to say, right? Um, we had to talk to governments around the world. And particularly we were looking at sub-Saharan Africa and India Mm. and we ended up having, um, well, first it was which countries did we think would be a good place to run a field test. And that's a number of factors like, uh, stability, um, transition of power between elections, um, accessibility for both boys and girls. You you don't want it in a war zone, for example, or or the risk of a war breaking out partway through the field trials, right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the places at first we were looking at Nigeria, but this was in the Boko Haram time. And we just thought this is too risky. We don't want to put the children at risk. We don't want to, you know, it's just. Right. Um, so all those sort of features we were thinking through. And we also wanted to make sure that the country, you know, they were our host, that they wanted us there. So we ultimately had about three countries that were really interested in saying, please come into our country. So then we looked at other things like um, which language would it be? Was there some uniformity of a language that children would all know? Because we yeah. know kids learn the best in a language that they already are familiar with. Um, so a place like, for example, South Africa, where they have, um, you know, more than a dozen languages yeah. that are spoken. Um, so we wanted something that was, that had a more uniform language. Um, so part of that, once we decided on Tanzania and had agreements was, uh, making sure there were enough children that were out of school, but, but safety for the children, enough nutrition for the children. Cause we know right. if kids don't have access to food, you can have the best software in the world, but they have to have some baseline of nutrition. To yeah. Be able they're to hungry. Learn. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's more it, important than learning. I imagine. Yeah. Well, and the two are, I mean, they're Deeply tied connected. in. Right. Yeah. I mean, you need both. Uh, Eat a b- so, good breakfast, everybody. That's the moral of the story for today. Yeah, so. that's true for everybody. Right. If that's the one thing you take away from this podcast. <laughs> that's it. Nothing else. Um, but this, I mean, this is why schools in the United States will provide, there's free breakfast for free lunch programs. We know that, that kids have to be able to have food. There's yeah. so many issues here. This is why, you know, XPRIZE looks at, we take one piece of something. So that, you know, people can get overwhelmed with trying to solve 
all of it at once. Um, but if we can take a piece of it and say, okay, here's what we know that if a kid has at least basic level of nutrition yeah. that they have, you know, they're not in a war zone. Um, and we can build enough infrastructure to test if this is there, what will happen? Right. So we want to create that environment, but make it enough so that we could take lessons out of this to say, okay, but what about when you do go into a war zone? Because we, we don't want to, you know, we want, we don't want to leave any children out because mm. especially those who are most in need and who have interrupted education and who will presumably hopefully grow up someday to want to fix the challenges in their one community, yeah. you know, to, to yeah. make it so there isn't war there to rebuild after there is some sort of devastation in an area. Yeah. So we wanted, so, but for us, we needed to have, you know, 15 months of testing, a community that wanted it there, um, some stability for the children. So once we had all of that, we identified also, we had to make sure because it's a competition. So this is not a humanitarian intervention. This is something that was a challenge throughout really that most people think, Oh, if you're bringing literacy to children, this is a humanitarian quest. Yes. But, but really it's a field test within a competition. Right. So we had to make sure that there was equal distribution, that our five finalist teams across these villages, that they had equal number of boys and girls, nomadic communities and, and non-nomadic communities, um, the ages of the children, um, all the things we could do. So did you, it uh, it, let's say you had a one village, just an, uh, just a random example. Imagine you mm -hmm. have a typical village. How many kids would typically be in one of those villages? Well, so that would range anywhere from, I think, uh, the standard I'd have to look back exactly, but it had to have more than, I think it was four or five eligible okay. children, but it would range from, so say five to about 25. Oh, okay. Okay. But because you had that range, we worked with a group RTI international, who's really kind of the, the gold standard of assessment and, and USAID uses them, et cetera. Right. Um, so they were also really helping us to make sure that if one team had, meaning our competing team, had a village that had 25 and a village of five, that each team would have a village of 25 and a village of five. Oh, so you're I controlling see. for all of those factors. The best that we I mean, it's human beings, obviously. So it's not a, you know, in a lab, a scientific yeah. study, but, yep. um, or things like some of the communities were, um, on the coast. So they were fishing villages and some were in mountainous regions. So we need to distribute all those different things right, equally right. amongst the teams. Um, then from there, we had to find structures, um, that could hold a solar charging, uh, panel. So in a few places we had to build such a structure, but many places it was in a, a house or some sort of structure that was already there in the community. We installed solar charging stations and a, um, basically looks like a cabinet where you could store all of the tablets for that community and charge them. Right. Um, these tablets, uh, the software is designed to be used offline. That was a question we got a lot. People said, Hey, by 2019, when you close this, everyone's going to have internet. Uh, so, but right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's still not true. <laughs> yeah, um, I was going to say, and again, particularly thinking about that, we are looking for areas that are, you know, the kids most in need hmm. because, pe you know, people ask all the time, you know, well, what about we have children in need in, you know, United States and of course. And so our idea is this can, if it can work in these areas where they don't have connectivity, they don't have the infrastructure, they have all these challenges. We believe that other communities, once they right. see it works, will be able to do it. So you're probably, we, you're probably setting this challenge up to be as challenging as feasibly possible, given the fact that you yeah. can't depend on internet access. You are doing it in locations that are going to have a high level of dust and grit that yep. can get in the tablets. Exactly. Like, it's going to be very seasons. different if you do that in Detroit, mm -hmm. you know? So. Right. 
Right. So when people would ask us, you know, they'd say, well, why don't you start with the U.S.? You know, we've got problems in our own schools. And we say, of course, you know, this is when we say global learning, we mean the globe and the U.S. is part of the globe. Yeah. Um, but we wanted to, you know, really work in this particular environment, which I'll tell yeah. you, having been on this project for nearly five years now, <laughs> there many times all of us on the team questioned why we did this in the most <laughs> difficult environment <laughs> we could find. Because, I mean, the story is about just roads flooding out or, I mean, just there's many challenges. Um, right. But so these were areas that didn't have connectivity. But when the tablets were charged, enough data would go back to the teams so they could get data back and adapt. Every uh, five of our five finalist teams, every team was able to do two updates throughout the course of the field test. So they would get that data back and then they'd be able to say, okay, we need to adapt for this particular challenge. So there was some data. How often did they get the data back? Weekly. It was weekly. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So they're yeah, getting about, a weekly dump of, uh, mm-hmm. right, broadly of of, yeah. of patterns that they're seeing. I'm assuming that they rigged up their software in a way, in the, in a way that they could generate the data points mm-hmm. that they were particularly interested in. And then they had, you said, two yeah. opportunities to provide a version update to their software. And then would it go out exactly. to the same kids in the same villages? Yes. All right. Yes. So, you, so they're not yeah. starting over again, obviously. So Right. So, so we could then track also with usage data, you know, was it falling off before an update? Like what happened after an update? How did that change things? What was happening with their learning gains? Right. Um, and, and I also want to say, even though this was focused on reading, writing, and math, many of our teams wanted to integrate other features. So for example, um, one team had a drawing feature that had digital crayons of different colors. And after children did a certain amount, once they would unlock, you know, a certain amount of learning, they could then draw. So we suddenly were getting all of these pictures back from children drawing and, you know, describing their world their world visually, right. many of these children saying this was the first time they had had art supplies, you know, even though they were digital, oh, wow. but they didn't have crayons and paints and things. I mean, there were, there's obviously communities have their own sort of art forms, but not in terms of visual art in that way where yeah. the children were drawing. So that was fascinating to see what children saw. Um, yeah. And this, this made us think about, you know, in future updates, we would love to see you know, what kind of music would children create? What sort of documentaries would they make? Um, You know, this is really about, you know, we were testing a basic idea, but our hope once now that this code is, is opened is that it's, it can be anything, you know, this can be just allowing children to access learning across whatever sort of field that people want to build for. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think it's fine. I can imagine as well, you know, a young, a young kid, (laughs) opening up what we now know as basically a paint program mm-hmm. and yep. thinking, okay, what the hell do I do with this? <laughs> and then realize once the, once they've just drawn their first line thinking, I can imagine it unlocking a lot of, a lot of potential. Cause I think that's yeah. one of the joyous things about technology, right? Is, is, is when you start realizing just what you can do with the tools that you've got available to you is pretty empowering, um, in itself. For sure. So, um, so you, you kind of, um, you pulled in all of this data. You got to the end of the field trials. How did you pick a winner, uh, or the two winners? Because mm-hmm. it was it was uh, there was Team yeah. One Billion and Team KitKat School yep. um, won the competition. Correct. How how was that decided? So that was our. Uh, we had an independent panel of judges. Sometimes people will say 
you know, why did X prize choose two winners or something like that, where we, so it's literally me and our lawyer <laughs> who just talked to our judges, introduced the parameters, and then we left them to debate on their own. Um, okay. so this is not something, you know, X prize is not part of that decision. We set up the field test. It is completely independent. Um, so we had judges who are from all different continents around the world, different backgrounds, um, who'd been following this. They had met the teams when we had semifinalists about uh, a little over a year and a half prior to the, uh, judging final judging. Right. Um, it was really a rather simple process. They got the data back. What did the children learn? What were their skills before they had the tablets? And then we did that baseline testing and then end line testing that said after they had the tablets, what were their skills? Now for technical people out there, there's all sorts of subtasks. Um, mm. people sometimes ask about what assessment we used. It was EGRA early grade reading assessment and EGMA early grade math assessment. Right. Um, and so we have made all of that data publicly available. So you can find that on our, our data.xprize.org. Um, site. So we wanted to make sure there's so many questions still to be answered. Um, So our judges were really just looking at that one piece. How did they, how well could they write, read and do math before and after, but there's so many other data points that we were capturing. So we asked all sorts of things about their water supply. We asked about, uh, or there's questions to be learned when you combine with what the apps were doing. So for example, were the kids who were drawing that I just described, did they learn uh, reading better when they were drawing? I don't know. Just those types of questions mm, that mm. are still out there to be explored. And then we did a, a, a subsequent, actually, it was a study at the same time, not subsequent. Um, we uh, did a social emotional testing for the children. We worked with the University of Dar es Salaam, which is the uh, a university in the capital in, in Tanzania. And um, so we wanted to find out how the confidence level of the children shifted or not, oh. um, what their aspirations were for the future, um, how the adults felt. So this social emotional study was the children with the tablets and then their parents or other, you know, adult or guardian was with them. What did you see yeah. there? What was the, what was the outcome? <laughs> so what we found with that study, and I will say our judges didn't see that. Okay. Um, so it, that there, the judging was separate from all the right. data we got. This is just an additional insight. Yes, into, in addition. Got it. Right. Um, so we saw a transformation um, in what children, and I wish I had it in front of me right now, the exact numbers, but it basically was a complete switch from the children who, when you said, what do you want to be when you grow up or what sort of work do you want to do? Who just said, I don't know. Two children who could list a specific profession. Wow. We also broke it down by professions that would require literacy um, you know, some would say, you know, it shifted and said a farmer or something that would be adults they'd see in their communities. But others were saying things like, you know, teacher and doctor and um, other thing, politician that would require literacy. So we saw a transformation there. Well, some politicians. I mean, not all politicians <laughs> seem to be literate. Oh, but, oh we're know. going there. We're not going there. <laughs> we're absolutely not going there. Um, but Yeah. So we also saw, I'll tell you, you know, you, you started in the beginning talking about my background. Um, you know, I was a, a college professor. I spent a long time uh, doing research in African studies and um, global human rights development. One of the things I was really concerned about was um, whether the adults would really um, not like this access to technology or this feeling that an outsider was yeah. bringing something into their community. Would it... Um, you know, take away some of their authority. Yeah, um, they, they've got to lose community. some control, right? By 
Yeah. Because they pro- they probably don't understand what this thing is going to be teaching. So therefore, it's it's kind yeah. of like switching a TV on and letting some random channel coming on and your your kids watching it. Yeah, like you're worried about exactly. what the content's going to teach them. I mean, we're both parents, you know. Yeah, you yeah. want to understand who's creating the content. What is your kid looking at? I think it's a very normal yeah. um, thing. And then also there's the politics of there's been a lot of stuff coming in from, you know, the West yep. into Africa that that there's, you know, very reasonable suspicion about what is this? You're going to dump a random, you know, piece of hardware in here and, and walk away. Like, what yeah. is this? Yeah. So, yeah, totally. um, and there was, that was certainly a challenge in the beginning. We had a number of instances, um, even though the regional governments, as I said, we only went to areas where we had consent and the people wanted us to be yeah. there, but there were always individuals within that community who were, um, suspicious of it and saying, you know, what is this? Is it doing harm to our kids? Um, but as the children started learning, there were, there was even one community that said, we're not going to do this. They ended up, you know, saying this is, this is no good. This is going to be, somebody was saying this was witchcraft. It's going to do something mm. to the kids. They saw that there were some neighboring communities. They heard about how well other children were learning and they brought it back and said, never mind. we actually do want to do this. <laughs> and That's what great. we saw, yeah. Um, we saw these adults, what they said was the children have more confidence and this is across the boards. So remember this is 170 different communities most of whom don't know each other at, you know, these are different, uh, you know, groups who are spread out. Um, and across the board, they were saying the children were more confident. They were greeting people. The children started dressing differently. Many of them started, you know, as if they were going to school and in many parts of the world, children will, you know, wear a school uniform or something. They're very kind of proud to, to dress, to go to school. They would start dressing to use the tablet. Um, really? that adults were saying they were bathing more. They were uh, more uh, doing their chores because uh, they were with more uh, vigor and they were listening to adults more, which surprise. I'll tell you, I wouldn't say my kids listen more after using a, after no, using I was going to say that. I... <laughs> um, so I don't think it, I think because it had that learning value, you know, so it wasn't just that there, I mean, there's certainly entertainment. That's why the kids went back to it, that they were designed to be engaging, but that, you know, our speculation there. And again, for any researchers who are out there, we, we need this data just went up, you know, a few weeks ago, there's lots more questions to be done to say, you know, the more they gain, did they gain more confidence? So those deep studies haven't been done yet. Again, we made it all publicly available. So, so please go check it out. But, um, you know, all those initial reports, you know, we, uh, you know, it's about what transforms within an individual. We talked in the beginning, you said, you know, what does learning in school get you? Um, you know, the fact that somebody could say, I don't know what my future is. Mm. I can't envision what my future is going to be. And then to suddenly say, Hey, I want to be a teacher and you're able to teach other children or maybe even your own parents how to write their name and how to do math. I mean, that is incredibly oh, awesome. transformative. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it makes the hairs in the back of your neck stand on end. It's, it's yeah. the thing that I love about this as well is that I think sometimes we don't think about within the context of these kinds of initiatives is just the, the sheer knock on effect, right? Is yeah. that if, you know, if, if one of those kids learns how to read um, or even just not necessarily fully, but just gets them over the hump and ignites an interest in learning and a sense of potential in themselves. Yeah. And then they, um, you know, they have more of an interest in books and they have more of an interest in, in other forms of learning. Their, their curiosity develops, then they, they end up, uh, you know, their interests develop and they end up 
taken a first job somewhere or they moved to a town exactly. or and all of the knock-on effects and i get the impression as well that if you come from a back i've noticed this consistently certainly with people who i've grown up with who came from more underprivileged backgrounds or more mm-hmm. challenging backgrounds um that they never forget that and there's yeah. always a sense of like wanting to go back and 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 take care of um, the people who you grew up with who didn't necessarily have an opportunity to break out on their own. Yep. So it's, yeah, it's, it's really pretty incredible stuff. And, and the challenge, I guess, is that you can't, you can't capture that data because that, that story hasn't happened. Exactly. Yet. <laughs> well, and this is where we're hoping, I mean, we're, we're still, as this is now, um, getting scaled to the world. So mm. we, you know, the results showed that, uh, all five of our finalist teams. So I know we, we talked about our two winners, Kick yep. school and 1 billion, um, that they consistently performed better than, you know, amongst the five, but mm. all five, you can, when, if you go and look at our, our, our site, you'll see the learning gains for all five was, I mean, significant isn't even the world. It is Just astounding. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. To see the difference between, we had a control population, of course, when we're doing a study to say the difference of any one of these tablets it was, I mean, these kids, they all learned. And this right. is something our judges were shocked. We, at one point, we were like, we don't know what the judges are going to do. How are, what are they going to do with this? Because people in the beginning of this competition said, this is a crazy idea. This is never going to work. Kids can't do this. You know, when you're talking about that transformation in a particular child, um, I want to go back to when I said this is not a humanitarian intervention. You know, the overall mission certainly is. But it's not about saying, oh, hey, let's give something to somebody in need. This is about transforming what we understand a human being is capable of and that a child having access to learning wherever they are makes the world better for all of us. It does. You know, yeah. It's not about, you know, I, and I think that's something that there's really a mind shift, particularly in the world of philanthropy. You know, it's not just like, oh, here, let me give a little of what I have out. This is about we are all looking at the future of this planet. How are we all going to make it? How can we make it a better place for everyone? And that's something that you know, a child in Tanzania could get access to this, end up building upon that learning and be the Elon Musk, uh, you know, inventing all sorts of things for the whole yeah. planet that's going to transform. Oh, it's, it, 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 it's huge. And as is often the case with philanthropy, it's much easier to write a check than it is to actually roll <laughs> your sleeves up and do the work. And I admire you and your team and the teams who, who, who worked on this. So before we wrap up, these projects are now completely open source. They're mm-hmm. um, available in GitHub. Um, yep. You launched community.xprize.org, um, yep. where people can go and find out more. And um, there's, a, there's, there's obviously a desire for these open source projects to, to keep going and to keep developing. Absolutely. What, what do you think is next for this? Okay, for sure. Well, first of all, I want to say when you said it's with philanthropy, it's easiest to write a check. I will say we still do need people to write checks. Yeah, <laughs> we are a nonprofit organization and people sometimes forget that, um, that, you know, all the work we do, we really rely on, on people and philanthropists because you do what you can. Some people can, you know, their job can be part of this. Some people can develop code and some people can give their, their resources. So we, all of it. I tell you what though, you, happen. you have an asset, I think in, in Dr. Peter H. Diamandis, a man who has got the ability to get money out of so many people for a good cause. I, I've never seen anything like it. It's just unbelievable. His energy for X Prize yeah. and his ability to help bring money in as well. And of course, you've got a whole team that's doing this too, but yes. I've never seen anything like it with Peter. He's phenomenal. 
Yeah, he really is. Yeah. Um, so people should go check out, you know, talks by him and everything. Yeah. And go, um, but, and, go and, and go and donate to XPRIZE. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to, you know, the one thing is, of course, we have the Elon Musks that people say, well, then we don't need to get involved with XPRIZE because you've got, you know, a billionaire who's funding something. But the truth of the matter is, it really is, you know, something everybody can get involved in. And yeah. one thing I'm really excited about that's in this next chapter for XPRIZE is we're trying to find a way that anybody can get involved. So, you know, most people cannot write a million dollar check to help, right. to help, uh, you know, sponsor an X prize and not everybody is able to, um, be an entrepreneur and compete in an X prize. Although I would argue that many of you think that you can't, and you probably could join a team, um, that, that would be able to, yep. to compete. Um, but we are launching all sorts of programs coming up. So education and learning for not just children, but also adults so that there's gonna be lots of ways. So please check it out over the next year. We are, we are, um, unveiling a lot of new programs and ways that people can get involved, participate, smaller challenges, that sort of thing. That's great. Um, yeah, it's really exciting. It's the sort of thing we've wanted to do for so long. Yeah. And yeah. we are, you know, finally really launching. So that's, that's very exciting. And part of that is our, under the leadership of our new CEO, Anusha Ansari, yeah. who's really amazing. She She's started f- in yeah. October. <laughs> and, and people don't know this, but she was, her family was involved in the, uh, in the original XPRIZE, right? Yep. So, the Ansari, Ansari X-Prize. X-Prize. So exactly. she's, she's been around these parts for a while. She has, and she's. <laughs> you know, gone to space herself, which is really cool. Right. I mean, um, whatever. I mean, <laughs> yeah, so no she's been to space. No big deal. Okay. <laughs> yeah. whatever. <laughs> um, but for global learning specifically, uh, we have some projects that are already in the works. I mentioned before that, um, we've already had a company, Mac software, MAQ software right. that just, uh, they're passionate about, uh, India. So their, their founder who their CEO, who was originally from there, um, said we need to get a Hindi version. And so there are, um, already more than 25,000 uh, tablets being prepared with Hindi version of global learning software that's going to be distributed to children in just a couple of months. Right. Um, and they're working on an Urdu version that can be distributed in other parts of India and also Pakistan. Awesome. We have groups that are working on, one of our teams is working on a Spanish language version that they're working with some people in Honduras. Um, we've been talking with people who are looking at an, an Arabic version for Syria. Um, so there's all sorts of projects that are happening around the world. Uh, but one thing specifically, we, we want more people going into the code and building on it. Right. So we're going to be launching a global hackathon um, coming up where we in uh, our goal is 10 cities on five continents uh, where we just want to make sure that people are aware that software is out there and that they're starting to really think through what do our specific communities right. need. Like, what does a version for, you know, you mentioned Detroit. What does the Detroit version need? Right. Or what does the Rio de Janeiro version need? Um, so that people are able to really localize. So we're, we're doing that to try to meet that goal of 20 new languages within the first year. Yeah. Um, we really still, the hardware issue, you know, people who say, we want this software, we got to get it to our communities. Ours was a software competition. We, we are looking for the most affordable, scalable ways for people around the world to access hardware. So some of this is going to be an app that you could download on some, something you already have, but the communities who don't have hardware, we want to make sure that they have an easy way to get hardware. And then we're partnering with um, various nonprofits and multilateral organizations who say, great, once you have it localized and you have the hardware, we'll get it to people in need. That's great. Fantastic. Well, Emily, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate all the great work you've done. The kids around the world appreciate it. And, uh, (laughs) 
I just think you're one of you're one of the most impressive people I've ever worked with, and I just keep up Aww. the great work. And thank you for coming. Oh, out. that's so nice. Thanks, John. It was great to get to talk to you again. You were really instrumental in this, so um, <laughs> it's you. great to come full circle and talk to you at the end of it. Thank you.